we are delighted to have an audience here at the LSE, as well as an audience online, who are equally welcome to this event, which I'll be chairing by Nick Stern. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of the LSE. And this event is co-hosted by the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment and the ESRC Center for Climate Change Economics and Policy, both of which are hosted here at the LSE. It's also hosted by the Global Alliance of Universities on Climate, of which the LSE is co-chair with Tsinghua University in Beijing. And so we're very pleased uh, to have all of those organizations sponsoring this and very pleased to have this audience here today. Now, let me introduce Nick, who is one of those people who needs very little introduction, but I will give you a very brief one. Nick is chair of the Grantham Research Institute at climate, for Climate and Environment here at the LSC and chair of the ESRC Center. Fifteen years ago, his landmark review of the economics of climate change was published, and the world was never the same. It had been commissioned a year earlier by the then Prime Minister Tony Blair and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Gordon Brown, and had a major impact both in the UK and around the world in how we thought about the economics of climate change. He made the case the economic case for urgent climate action and spawned a huge debate about what should be done. If you Google the Stern Review today, you get more than two million mentions and, the, and you can see how big the debate around what is to be done about climate change it caused. Tonight, Nick will look back and review the progress that we have made since his influential review was published 15 years ago. He will cover the increasingly worrying scientific picture, the advances that we've made in technology, as well as the global response. He'll also talk a little bit about his expectations for COP26 and the summit in Glasgow, which starts next week. Now, knowing Nick, he won't spend the evening telling us, I told you so, but he could if he wanted to. <laughs> He'll speak for about 45 minutes uh, and then we'll take a Q&A both from the audience here in the room and also those of you who are online. For the Twitter users, uh, the hashtag for today's event is LN, hashtag LSCSternReview15. This event is being recorded and we will hopefully show it as a podcast and make it available afterwards. As usual, there'll be a chance to ask questions. For those of you who are on the online audience, please put your questions in the Q&A online and please let us know who you are and your affiliation. For those in the theater, uh, please just raise your hand in the old fashioned usual way. After the lecture, please join us outside for those of you who are here for a reception. So with that, I'm delighted to hand over to Lord Professor Nick Stern. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Manoush. Uh, can you hear me all right? And are those online? Is anybody in communication with those online? Can they hear me also? Well, presumably we'll get a message. <laughs> So thank you. And thank you, Manoush, for your leadership here at the LSE, obviously in general, but also on this particular 
issue. I think the LSE is out in front, um, but there's so far we all have to go, including ourselves here. Um, I also wanted to, as uh, Minouche has done, to welcome all our listeners from around the world um, in the Global Alliance of Universities on Climate. We've got around 15 of the best universities of the world from all the continents, um, essentially universities which are doing very serious research on, on climate, whether it be science or social science or whatever. And that's the Global Alliance of Universities on Climate. And uh, this is part of their preparation for uh, COP26. The um, slides that I'll speak from will be available once I've tidied up a few odds and bits uh, tomorrow morning, and we'll put them on the website so anybody wants to have a look at them. They are intended to be understandable um, without necessarily listening to me. Of course, it's much better if you do listen to me, but uh, in order to leave people who couldn't be here, something that they can look at quickly, we'll make those available. I'm going to move pretty fast. This is a very big subject and the details matter. And I'm assuming that the uh, audience has been self-selected for being smart and knowing something about the subject. So uh, I'm sure that going fast is not gonna be a problem. I wanted, I, I don't know how many people from the old Stern Review are online. I can see Eva Lee over there who was with us. I don't know if there are any others from the Stern Review in the room, but let's hope that there are some online and thank you very much for joining us. So um, next slide, please. Thank you, Wilson. So um, just to give you one slide on the whole storyline, the punchline in the Stern Review is that the costs of action are far lower than the costs of inaction. And as uh, Manoush uh, indicated in her introdu in introduction, the science has become a lot more worrying than it was. It was really seriously worrying when we published the Stern Review. It's become even more worrying uh, as time has gone by, and I'll go into that a little bit. Technology has moved in a way that we really couldn't have anticipated, or in any case didn't anticipate, in terms of how fast the cost, for example, of renewables have fallen how quickly the world has started to uh, move towards the electric vehicle, right across the board. The technology has moved very fast. So if the science has become more worrying and the technology has moved very fast, then the costs of inaction have gone up and the costs of action have gone down. So why has there not been much action? Well, there's been some action and it's been accelerating recently. And what I want to do is to emphasize just how far that delay has put us behind but also to note and to build on, develop the um, momentum that started to build in the last uh, few years. One of the reasons for the slow progress is that we were still for a long time, and to some extent still are, locked into the misconception that it's either living standards and growth on the one hand or climate action on the other. And that's a very serious mistake for all sorts of reasons. And it's some, a, a mistake that my own subject has done its bit to uh, feed and foster. Although I do think, uh, I, I guess you all know I'm a communist anyway, but the, uh, it, it, it hasn't performed as I think it should. I think it's starting to change, but I'll discuss directly the ways in which it should change, uh, given 
what we now understand the problem to be. We're going to have to move very fast to change the structure of our economy. It's going to involve a lot of investment, innovation, and dislocation. But that investment and innovation will take us to a very different form of growth and development from that which we've followed in the past, much, much more attractive, with much less destruction associated with it. And we can start to rebuild our natural capital and we really can get to the net zero by 2050 that we need whilst raising our living standards along the way. Living standards broadly understood in terms of, of course, material living standards, but also in the health and the environment and how we live. But we don't get there just by waiting. We have to invest. We have to invest strongly in all forms of capital, physical, human, natural and social. So that's the uh, storyline. Uh, there are tremendous benefits to be had, and I'm going to push at my own subject a bit, the economics, as to how it can help along that route. Next slide, please. So I'll look back over the 15 years, since it's a 15-year anniversary. Uh, I'll look forward to where we should be going, point to the changes in economics that are going to help us along the way, and then speculate a little bit about COP26 which will be next week in uh, Glasgow. How many of you are going to Glasgow to the COP? Well, that's a tidy number, 10 or so. That's excellent. Um, the um, 25,000 people, um, you know, crammed into one place, but it'll be, uh, it will be fine. Um, LAUGHTER <laughs> One thing they're used to in Glasgow, at least, is football crowds, so they ought to be able to handle much smaller numbers of uh, nice, gentle environmentalists. Um, next slide, please. Now, this started um, at the G8 summit. It was the G8 in those days, in 2005. The two subjects were Africa and climate. I'd just before the Stern Review had led the writing of the report of the Commission for Africa, and in the G8 summit in, um, it, in, in uh, 2005, in Scotland, again, we, um, Glen Eagles it was, we uh, made quite a lot of progress on the Africa story. The, it was a commitment to double aid for Africa uh, in the next uh, five years. And by and large, that did happen. <clears throat> on climate, we got very, very little. Uh, it was quite clear that the only people who understood something about climate in that group of the G8 with Tony Blair and Jacques Chirac. At, at that moment, they weren't getting on terribly well, um, but they were the two who were committed. The rest were just bored. And some of their um, team said, why are we spending money on this and time uh, and this, this presidential time on this rather marginal subject? That was the degree to which we were, as were battling against the lack of interest or the lack of knowledge on the subject. So right after we were discussing, particularly with Gordon Brown, why it was that one was moved faster than the other. And one of the reasons we came to quickly is that people, it wasn't simply that people hadn't thought enough about the science, they had not thought enough about the science, but they certainly hadn't thought enough about the economics. So we thought, let's try and set that out. Tony Blair, of course, was uh, part of that. So for the second year or so, I reported to both Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Those of you who know 
because they were together running the Commission for Africa. Those of you who know anything about the political history of this country will know that uh, reporting to them, oh, to them together over a period of about three years uh, was something of an achievement. One mustn't, you know, pride, pride is a sin, but uh, that was something that, that, that did work. Now, the, let's turn back to the Stern Review because Gordon Brown, Tony Blair strongly supported right from the beginning this work and when it came out and beyond. Uh, to try to summarize in just two sentences, one of which I've already uttered, the, uh, the, uh, the benefits of uh, early action far uh, outweigh the costs, or the costs of inaction are much greater than the costs of action. And climate change is the biggest market failure the world has ever seen. Uh, greenhouse gases, of course, there were almost entirely uh, unpriced. Uh, when you um, act in a way that inflicts costs on other people and you do not pay for those costs, then you do too much of the action that's inflicting costs on other people. That's a market failure. Markets are not giving the right signals unless we build policy. And so then the question arises, well, what policy? Carbon price, one part of the story, but there's so much more to the story than that. And that's what uh, I'll come to. But the biggest thing, the, what the, we try to get across is that the costs of inaction are far greater than the costs of action. And uh, that surely now, what I've already said about the movement of the science, which has shown it's still more worrying, much more worrying than it was before, even though it was greatly worrying then, and the advance of the technology, that has underlined that first statement very powerfully. Next slide, please. When we did the Stern review, there were only three of the IPCC assessment reviews. And uh, now we have um, we've gone on to assessment review six, which came out in August this year. And in addition, we've had a very important 2018 report, which compared 1.5 and 2. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. But each one has been more uh, worrying, expressed more worry, expressed stronger evidence, still stronger evidence than the one that went before. But scientists have been cautious. Now, you know, scientists, the scientific method is cautious for good reasons, that you shouldn't assert things unless you uh, feel that you have pretty strong evidence. But here, um, this is about risk. This is about delay being dangerous. Now, this is about getting locked in. So sometimes that hesitancy is not the cautious option. This is a moment where um, it is uh, much more risky to act strongly early than to uh, wait and wait and act later on. So that's the way the science has been built, as has been building, ever more worrying. Next slide, please. The risks which we looked at then um, were, of course, bad enough. But we've come to see in the meantime that we really do risk um, moving into places where we have tipping points, instabilities, the dynamics start to move very powerfully in a bad direction. Um, we don't know how close we are to the um, Amazon forest collapsing. 
you see different estimates that once you've lost 20, 30 or 40%, the whole equilibrium starts to fail. We don't know how close we are to that, but we may be close. And that would be catastrophic dynamics, of course, in terms of what would feed from that. Sawing of the permafrost releases methane. We don't know quite how much is there, but that again could be a very powerful feedback uh, effect. If the, um, if the Antarctic uh, ice sheets start to melt and slide off into the sea, then we could see sea level rise much more rapid than you'd get sim simply from thermal expansion of the oceans. We could be quite near tipping points um, that would take us into still more dangerous territory. And we've got to recognize that we are already at the edge of the Holocene period where we grew up as a civilization. Uh, that's the period which has been very, very stable from the point of view of temperature after the warming up of the last ice age, nine, 10,000 years ago, it's been very stable. And in that time, we turned grasses into grains. And then, so we sat down for a while until the harvest came. So we had villages where people were sitting and waiting and we had surpluses so that you didn't have to, and we had storage surpluses so that you could have universities uh, storage so that you didn't have to go out and hunt and gather every day. This is the time when our civilizations have essentially formed themselves and we're already on the edge or perhaps beyond the edge of those temperatures. Um, we're heading as a world to something like three degrees and anything like business as usual. Of course, we're working very hard not to go there. But just think about three degrees. We haven't been there for three million years. We are, as a, uh, Homo sapiens, uh, perhaps a quarter of a million, a quarter of a million years old, way outside the experience of Homo sapiens. At that time, sea levels were 10, 20 meters higher than now. You know, this is absolutely, think about where our main cities of the world are located, you know, on, on the whole, on rivers and seashores and so on. This is the kind of risks that we're talking about. Three degrees, no, we, it could be four or five degrees if we're reckless, but uh, even more reckless. But three degrees is, uh, would in, likely involve hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of people moving. Those who did move would risk conflict and loss of life, and those who didn't move would risk their lives and livelihoods as well. These are the kind of stakes that we're playing for. There were some at the time who suggested that the report was alarmist. Alarmist was a very common term used at the time. We way underestimated the risks. We described it as very dangerous. It was much more, much more than uh, that. So that's um, where we were with the science. Next slide, please. So what's happened? Well, actually emissions are 20% higher now than they were then. Um, we have to get down, of course, to net zero to stabilize, but they were, uh, what we have seen in that time is emissions rising. So this is a story that's got not only more difficult because the science has shown the risks are still more worrying, but we've also made the problem much more difficult by upping the concentrations in the atmosphere through the concentrations, and even worse than that, because whilst the concentrations are positive, so whilst the flows are positive, the concentrations go up. Positive flows, concentrations up. 
but uh, it's been even worse than that. The concentrations themselves have been going up in this uh, story. Next slide, please. So um, this is the pattern that uh, you've seen. We've seen uh, over a longer period of time now in the concentrations themselves. And you see it's been a very strong increase. It was particularly strong in the first decade of this century. That's particularly when China was growing about 10% a year on um, the back of energy, which was almost entirely fossil fuel. That was a very big increase. It's also the case that China's emissions are flattening off now and have been bumping along a plateau really for the last five, six years. They've ticked up very recently, but of course that's a big part of the story. China now uh, pushing eight, pushing 30% of the emissions and uh, the US roughly half of China's, but much bigger than China's in terms of emissions uh, per, per capita. So that's the story where the, um, of how emissions have actually moved. Next slide, please. At the, at the same time, technology has moved very rapidly. Technology has moved very rapidly and in the sense of dramatic reductions in the cost of renewables. We've seen the costs of electric cars go down very quickly as well. So that's illustrating a remark I already made. Next slide, please. The international story has been starting to move. Um, the, uh, I've been to more um, COPs than I care to remember. I started going in the year that the Stern Review was published in 2006, and I've been going to uh, all of them uh, since then. I'll tell you one or two stories as, uh, as we move on. But I think it is true that the international system has moved uh, quite strongly. And of course, the most important in that story up to now has been the Paris Agreement of um, uh, December 2015, where the world committed to the targets of well below two degrees, best efforts to 1.5. It came in with its what was called nationally determined contributions, which is how they saw their emissions going up to 2030. Adding up the emissions that were described for 2030, it was quite clear that that was totally inconsistent with the target of well below two degrees. There was honesty in that. So they said, come back in five years, we'll all come back in five years and see how we can increase our ambitions for emissions reduction. But five years turned out to be six because of uh, COVID, but that's where we are. So the meeting is directly COP26 about how we ramp up our emissions reductions in order to make the um, targets, the temperature targets, which we wisely set in Paris, uh, achievable. That's the task and that's what uh, COP26 is for. I'll come to how far we're likely to get right at the end of what we have to say. Next slide, please. That was sort of international gatherings. Now we have in this last two, three, four years, very strong movement in the private sector. Um, at the last uh, Davos meeting in person in January last year, um, it was the title was Stakeholders for a Cohesive and Sustainable World. And it was a tremendous effort, uh, emphasis in that meeting on uh, climate uh, story. If you, I can't go through all the detail here, but if you just look at the Glasgow Financial Alliance for net zero, 
Uh, it now has uh, assets um, under management committed to net zero of 90 trillion. At the beginning of last year, if you looked at the uh, asset managers who were committed to net zero, it might have corresponded to about 5 trillion of assets. Um, the, the, uh, those of you from the school, um, I hope will know about the Transition Pathways Initiative. And their, their estimate is that something close to half of the assets under management, uh, of course, that's only a fraction of the total assets, but something like a half of the assets under management are devoted to net zero, committed to net zero. Now, just as countries' commitments to net zero, some countries more credible than others, financial institutions' commitment to net zero, some of them more credible than others. Similarly, firms' commitment to net zero, some of them more credible than others. But it's good to have those commitments because that sets a sense of direction. It's, you know, then shareholders, workers, customers can hold the firms to account to deliver on that uh, story. One of the reasons that they've made those commitments is because they do see that they have responsibilities in a community. They've been helped along by the increasing evidence that those who are more responsible in relation to environmental sustainability issues are also those who do better in relation to conventional measures of firm performance. So there are two reasons. One is that they feel they should, and the other is that, uh, that it is actually um, doing well by doing good in that uh, in that sense. So that's been a remarkable movement in the last uh, few years. I was at a conference in Austria a couple of weeks ago with Central Bank and um, Philip Hildebrandt, who's the vice chair of BlackRock, a very, very big uh, investment management company, uh, described this story as the biggest market reallocation the world has ever seen. So they're looking, looking at where the world is going, which is what you have to do if you're managing financial assets. So that change has been very powerful. And of course, outside the financial sector, many companies making their commitments. Uh, next slide, please. The politics has moved to and fro. Um, the, uh, I think the global financial crisis used up bandwidth and it, uh, things slowed down really uh, in this uh, in this dimension you know, from about 2009 onwards. After some enthusiasm, particularly with you know, Angela, Angela Merkel's leadership of the G7, Germany always follows the UK and the chair of the G7, so they'll be in the presidency of the G7 next year. But there, you know, following on from, um, uh, and they were also in the chair of the EU, Angela Merkel was very strong in that period, but things got overwhelmed by, in terms of political bandwidth, by the global financial crisis, refugee issues, and, uh, and, and so on. But in this last couple of years, things have picked up enormously. Now, China made its commitment to go carbon neutral by uh, uh, 2060 in September last year, notice before, before the US presidential election. They very clear signal they were doing it because they thought it was the right thing to do. And indeed, they uh, recognized the dangers of climate change for China. And they saw that there was a green race there that they could uh, do rather well in. And good luck to them if they, uh, if they do. So those are the changes that we've seen. Uh, it started to pick up in 2007, 8, 9. Then it uh, faltered. 2015 was a pickup with Paris. And then the last two or three years, we've started to see much greater uh, momentum 
Uh, next slide, please. So I've described a, a progress where emissions have gone up, where the politics have been up and down, um, but where we're starting to pick up in the last two or three years, both in the private sector and in the uh, national politi politics. But it is fair to ask, what it, why is it that we did go so slowly? Well, I've already mentioned the global financial crisis and, and the, uh, the bandwidth, but we still have a system in which people's economic activities are locked into uh, uh, a market structure where the prices are very distorted. The, there's been some recent work in the last in the last year trying to pick up how much uh, carbon, how much um, climate is already in the market prices, and the answer to that is not much. Those uh, the market prices have a very powerful um, bias in favour of carbon intensity. It's not yet embodied there either in the prices themselves, in the markets that people face or in the price of uh, assets. So we've had, as it were, a, a, um, um, a lack of movement, a kind of lock-in in the markets themselves. We've had infrastructure that operates in different ways in different countries. But for example, in China, the uh, infrastructure is tilted in favor of buying from uh, coal-fired power stations first before the renewables. Um, so you have institutional structures like that. A Europe that had an integrated grid would be covering central Spain in solar panels and exporting the electricity north uh, through France into uh, the rest of Europe. But borders don't work so well. Electricity to France don't make it easy to send the uh, electricity northwards. So you can see there are barriers in the market and rigidities in the market, there are rigidities in uh, infrastructure, and then of course there's the political economy of vested interests. For a very long period, and it hasn't stopped, those with vested interest in fossil fuels have been working away to try to stop progress. Those of you who want to see some of the methods they've used in the past, that you should read the book by uh, Oreskes and, and Conway, Merchants of Doubt which illustrates how they've acted to try to block progress, including by distorting the science. So there are big change at pace isn't easy, but it is, I think, striking that we're starting to get it. And that's the big challenge, how we really make it happen. But in all this, there's the story that I mentioned right at the beginning, where economics, I think, has fed it in a way that's unhelpful is that, well, you know, this is a choice, it's trade-offs, either the environment or the uh, economy. And if you want to uh, kill the economy, do lots on the environment. I think I recall President Trump making that uh, point. And what we have to do in economics is emphasize the importance of the change, show it how it can happen, but also recognize it as a new form of development and growth, which is far more attractive than what went before. Next slide, please. I think that uh, we also see now in young people, the results of education in a way that wasn't there when we did the Stern Review. At, in 2006, it wasn't true that most people at school had learned about climate change. Now, it surely is true. I mean, certainly in Europe, 
that most people at school have learned about climate change. It's true in India and China and other parts of the world as well. That exposure to the whole science story, I think has been enormously important in changing the politics of, in, with young people. They actually know what they're talking about, much better, as it were, than earlier generations. And they've gone beyond, and I'm, I'm telling you this, but you know, because you are they, um, they've gone beyond simply shouting, you must do something. Actually, it's very important to shout, you must do something, but they've gone beyond that into the details of what we have to do. Now we have a, a sustainability uh, group, strategy group in the LSE, it's meeting day after tomorrow, I think. And um, there the student representatives are absolutely at the forefront of that group in understanding what it is that we have to do. And I think that informed, thoughtful participation of young people is becoming more and more important and part of that building momentum. Next slide, please. Anyway, here a little, you've got to have a few pictures if you're going to uh, reminisce. So there's the uh, G8 summit with uh, Tony Blair. There's Tony Blair with his right hand sort of in front of my, I, I notice I've got a poppy because that was the time of year. Um, then we visited Antarctica with Hilary Benn in 2009. This is on the great Mela Sonawi, quite extraordinary uh, talent. Um, uh, a real leading intellect, as well as a, a guerrilla fighter and a prime minister who changed the course of uh, Ethiopia. And it was with Meles that uh, I worked in 2009 to negotiate the 100 billion flows from rich countries to poor countries, working with Mike Froman, who was uh, working with Hillary Clinton. Obviously, I've been very close to the 100 billion story right through. I'm happy to take some questions on that. This is... Um, Myself and Al, Al Gore and Ségolène Royal, when Laurent Fabius brought down the mallet for the uh, Paris Agreement in December 2015. Um, I will note that, um, that, that Al and myself are looking at the stage and Ségolène's looking at the camera, but we all, we all, we all take choices in life. The, um, and then the most recently, this is um, Carol Proper and I, at the Royal Economic Society, where I gave the talk, which is the paper, which has been is released today, isn't it, Bob? For the uh, um, it's coming out in the Economic Journal next uh, next summer. People always like pictures much more than text. <laughs> next slide, please. So, uh, next slide, please. Let's go looking forward. Now, let me underline perhaps what I should have underlined at the beginning, but I did say that if you want to go. If you want to stabilize temperatures, you've got to stabilize concentrations, and that means flows which are net zero. I hope that's clear. I hope you all know that a greenhouse gas is a, a gas that oscillates at the same frequency as infrared energy, so it interferes with the infrared energy. It's coming back off the Earth's surface, and that's what defines a greenhouse gas, that oscillation frequency. It's our really bad luck that CO2 turned out to be a greenhouse gas. So that's the story in the basic science. The earlier you go to net zero, the lower the temperature at which you stabilize. But of course, it's the sum total of emissions over time that counts. So the path to net zero is extremely important. And it's got that the faster it goes down, the lower the temperature 
in which you stabilize. But if you're going to stabilize, it's got to be net zero. Even if, God forbid, you stabilize at four degrees, it would still have to be net zero. Otherwise, it would go on going up. It wouldn't be uh, stabilized. So that's the story. I, I won't go into detail on these graphs. Please do, when you read about these things, distinguish between CO2 equivalent and CO2. CO2 equivalent is those extra greenhouse gases over and above uh, carbon uh, dioxide. It usually adds about 50% roughly. There's no hard rule there, but roughly speaking, it adds about uh, 50%. So you can see where we're headed and you can see we have to change very quickly. Next slide, please. I haven't got time to say much about the COVID crisis, but this is a story where we should be investing strongly to get out of the COVID crisis in a sustainable way, investing strongly around the world because it's a global crisis. And that means that um, we have to uh, uh, choose the investments and we should be investing, of course, in the sustainable future. So in large measure, the uh, story of how we should come out of the COVID crisis um, sits very clearly within the whole story of investing for climate action. Next slide, please. That investment's got to be different from what uh, went before. It's got to be sustainable, obviously. We're going to discuss the priority areas for that. Um, the uh, most investments ratios around the world, something between 10 and 20% is public. The rest is private. So when we talk about investment and investment driving, which is the big message of what I want to say, this new kind of investment, the majority of that is going to be private sector. The public sector side of that will be very important, but the majority will be private sector. Next slide, please. Now, in thinking about uh, that investment, please remember that we live in a world where planned saving is, in, is bigger than planned investment. Those of you who remember your economics uh, and Keynes will recognize this as a world which has uh, got insufficient demand. And you can, that has been reflected around the world for a long period of time now with real interest rates for many countries, which are zero or negative. It's been reflected in slow growth of productivity in many countries. The answer to that question of planned investment being, being too small in relation to planned savings, obviously, is to increase the planned investment, not to reduce the planned savings because the investment challenge is so strong. So I've argued that we need to increase investment. How much do we need to increase investment? Well, you can look at it in different ways, complementary ways, not additive ways. And you keep coming back to something around two or three percentage points of GDP. That's about as much as the investment has declined in G7 countries over the last 20 years or so. If you look at the infrastructure patterns that we're going to have to see in developing countries, particularly as they urbanize strongly and build their energy infrastructure, you're going to see that uh, uh, the kinds of investments they need to make in infrastructure take you in the same kind of direction. And of course, this has to be investment in very different infrastructure than uh, the past. And you know, if you start to look at the detail, for example, of transforming energy systems, natural capital and so on, you get to similar kinds of numbers. We don't have to die in a ditch for whether it's 2%, 3%. You know, what we can see very clearly is that uh, it's going to, we're going to need a substantial increase in investment 
sustained over a long period of time and a change in the nature of investment. So that it's all sustainable, all consistent with the path to the zero carbon economy. If we do it well, this will be much more resource efficient in the past. That's another way of saying much more productive, much more productive in the use of resources. It's going to give us cities where we can move and breathe and uh, ecosystems rich are robust and fruitful. That sounds like a good idea, even if you've never heard of climate change. So the returns to these kinds of investments, these new kinds of investments can be very high, should be very high if we do it well, in addition to the fundamental uh, objective here of reducing the risk of climate change. So this is the sense in which we have a tremendous opportunity, but it doesn't come for nothing. You've got to get investment going to take that opportunity to build this different form of development and poverty reduction. <coughs> Sorry about that. Next slide, please. So I've already said this is the growth story uh, of the future, but thinking of growth in the sense of rising living standards, the sustainable development goals. Those of you who like your badges will notice that uh, Manoush and I are wearing the badge of sustainable development goals. So when we talk about development, that's the kind of development that we mean right across the board, of course, material living standards and food, but also health and education and gender and environment and inequality, all the dimensions of the sustainable development goals. It's that new form of development that's available to us if we move strongly. In the next five or 10 years, it's a question of um, increasing demand and sheltering supply in the short to medium run. In the medium run, it's a Schumpeterian story of discovery, innovation, investment, and the new kind of growth. And there is no long run high carbon growth story. It simply doesn't exist. It self-destructs on the hostile environment that it creates. This is the growth story of the 21st century. Of course, thinking of growth in a much broader sense than simply narrow material product, but growth in living standards and development more generally. Next slide, please. Um, the, uh, I haven't got time to go into this in any detail. I've em emphasized the importance of technology, but let me just emphasize the importance of systems. Cities are complicated systems. You don't reform a city simply with a carbon price. We do need a carbon price, but by itself, it doesn't redesign a city. Transport and energy systems are complex systems that fit together and have to be transformed as systems. And these systems interact. Land use, of course, an extremely important part of that story. In one sense, we're fortunate that the great digital and AI revolution have come along, along with climate change, uh, challenge of climate change, and we can use that to manage the systems. Now I'm going to have to accelerate a little bit. Next slide, please. Uh, I've emphasized dislocation. The notion of the just transition is fundamental. That means investing in people and places. Many of you will have read uh, Minushi's book on uh, social contract. We are part of a community. We have duties one to the other. And those who are working in industries which will not now uh, be uh, as viable or not viable at all in terms of this new economy will have their working lives dislocated. It's a challenge to us and a duty that we have to invest in people and places to overcome that. And of course, social safety nets where necessary. Although I prefer the positive story first, 
invest in people and places, but keep the social safety net where that doesn't uh, work. Next slide, please. There's also a story of international climate justice. Now, if you run back the total amount of emissions that have come from Africa over the, the, the last couple of hundred years, it might be 3% of the total. And Africa is uh, the most vulnerable uh, continent to climate change. Those who are most vulnerable have not been uh, the prime causes. Now, nevertheless, if we're going to go net zero, it has to be net zero everywhere. And I've argued that net zero, uh, uh, that the path to net zero is a new form of development. But the duty, it seems to me now, is of the uh, rich world to really help support the poorer world in getting going that investment, which can drive a new form of development. It's not that some people have to do it and some people don't. How do you get to net zero that way? They're not going to be such big negatives. But at the same time, we're saying this is a very powerful development story. So the duty then of historical responsibility and being richer involves uh, working so that the uh, particularly the low cost finance is there to take that investment forward. And let me, uh, but I'm emphasizing we have to go net zero everywhere. And back in 2011 at COP17 in Durban, I was on an Africa panel chaired by Meles Zanawe, and he made a very memorable statement it is not justice to foul the planet because other people have fouled it in the past. There's a different kind of justice at work here. There's big changes to be made, attractive changes to be made. They're not easy, they involve investment. So for me, the justice here is helping make that investment happen. Next slide, please. I haven't got time to say as much as I would have wanted to say about adaptation and resilient resilience. They are absolutely critical. Climate change is with us, it's hard. But let me be uh, very clear that we have to work to put development mitigation adaptation together. And there's so many examples. Look at mangroves, restoring degraded land, system of route intensification for ice, public transport, decentralized solar. I can go into the detail one by one with you, but it should be obvious that these are all development mitigation resilience together. Let me just take the one example of the mangroves. If we protect our mangroves, then uh, we protect the whole structure of the fishing industry. In some places, there are tigers and people come as tourists to watch the tigers in the mangroves. Most importantly, it is a big fishing uh, story. The, uh, they protect against storm surges and they really capture carbon. Now, all the examples I've given here, you can build it. But development, mitigation, adaptation are integrated together and our job is to integrate them together, not to set you know, resilience on the one hand and mitigation on the other. We've got to do both. And just as important, we've got to integrate them into the whole development story. Next slide, please. The uh, whole interweaving of climate and biodiversity is very important. Actually, a week from now, or just over a week from now, Bartha Dasgupta and I, who Bartha just did the, this report on economics and biodiversity, which I think you chaired here at Minouche, he launched, he launched it here at the LSE, and we're going to, to speak together on a platform uh, just to emphasize the interlinking and the interweaving. Again, I haven't got time to go into it, but enormously important. Next slide, please. The, um, 
Uh, I'll come back uh, a little later on how we put the, uh, can't be much later because I'm running out of time, but on the international action and how we weave all this together. But uh, a big part of the story will be what the multilateral development banks can do to manage risk, reduce risk, help the investments have uh, steady revenue flows, carry the risk of early stage investment. Those are the kinds of things that are crucial to bringing down the cost of capital and triggering the big private investment flows. This is a moment for the MDBs, multilateral institutions, established after the Second World War when we had to work internationally to rebuild infrastructure. We now have to work internationally to rebuild in infrastructure and take investment forward. Fortunately, we've got those institutions. The challenge now is to take them to much bigger scale, get them to work much better together so that they can play a powerful role in building up the investment story we need. Next slide, please. So it's a critical period, 15 years, uh, 20 years, infrastructure will double. If that infrastructure looks anything like the infrastructure that we've seen in the past, a new lot of infrastructure in 15, 20 years, just as big as the one we have. If that new lot of infrastructure looks anything like the old, then say goodbye to three degrees, let alone two degrees. So that's the challenge and decisions on the infrastructure, which we will actually build in the next 15 or 20 years will be taken in the next five or 10 years. This decade is of absolutely crucial importance, not simply in terms of how we have to reduce emissions, but how we have to build for the future and lay the foundations for something much di very different and not lock in the polluting infrastructures, which delay would give. Next slide, please. Time for change in economics. Well, that's going to have to be brief, but let's go. Next slide, please. <laughs> economics has largely been absent. Yeah, I mean, this is really dreadful. The biggest problem of our time, you know, the Quarterly Journal of Economics, which have been absolutely outstanding, no papers on climate change. No, the American Economic Review has been a bit better than uh, the rest, but, you know, it, uh, an economic journal, second place. But this is terrible. And so partly we've not grappled with the problem. Next slide, please. Um, partly when we have grappled with the problem, we've misspecified it. I've already said that the risks in the risk structures in these economic models are way out of whack with what the climate science is telling us. Next slide, please. So what we're gonna need from economics <clears throat> are uh, in this area, uh, first an economics of extreme risk. How do we think about problems where hundreds of millions of people could die if we get it wrong? That's not something which a simple expected utility approach is very good at grappling with. And what we have uh, learned to do, I think, what the world has done intuitively is to take a guardrail approach just as you do with many other safety issues. You put in guardrails, the guardrail here is uh, holding to 1.5 degrees or well below two degrees. That seems to be a consequentialist rational approach to problems of extreme risk where simplistic utility expectations don't really capture the essence of the problem. That's something which the world went to actually. It's quite striking that it did. But the bigger part of economics has got to be how do you change structures in real time? And that's a, absolutely uh, crucial. It is public economics as if time matters. Public economics is structural change. 
It's not comparative statics. It's something very different where the dynamics of learning are going to be enormously important. And as ever, of course, distributional issues strong. So what happened in the early stages of economics is the problem was shoehorned into narrow expected utility maximization in simple growth models, which had a bit of a perturbation from climate. We took the problem and at the beginning, okay, use what you've got. But it turned out that the risks were much, much too big for those workhorses that we were bringing to the table. And that's where I think economics went wrong. Anyway, it's moving in a better direction now. Next slide, please. Um, discounting, again, this is a big subject, but actually I think you can do it in two slides. I'll do it very fast. If you think about what weight you should attach to an extra unit of something, say consumption in the future, relative to an extra unit now, I hope you would ask, well, how well off are those people going to be in the future relative to now? That would be the kind of, it's a, these are value judgments, it's an ethical discussion, but that's the kind of thing that you'd want to think about if you're doing discounting. And discounting is how much less weight you attach to something in the future relative to now. So that relative price, if you like, that relative valuation is the social discount factor and the social discount rate is the proportional rate of fall of the social discount factor. This bit is for the economists. Eh? Don't worry if you don't know all this stuff, but this bit is for the economists. So, what you should do is start with the concept, which is that relative valuation, not jump straight to the social discount rate, which is actually a subsidiary concept. The primary concept is the relative valuation. And then you put it that way, you immediately think about how well off those people are going to be. If we manage climate change badly, then those people are going to be much worse off. So you can see there is no way of pulling in structure of discounting separate from the valuations that we have and the economic models we build with all the risk that they have in them. It cannot be exogenous in the sense that many people would like it to be. It cannot be pulled in from outside the model. So that's the first part of the story. The second part of the story is pure time discounting. Pure time discounting is attaching a lower weight to somebody who comes later simply because of their date of birth. Take two identical people, identical in the sense of everything that matters in terms of their consumption flows and all that. Two identical people, one born uh, 20 years after the other. Why would you attach a lower weight to increments in consumption to that person who was born later? There is no serious argument in ethics. You know, wherever, wherever you go, you know, whether it's Aristotle or John Stuart Mill or or Kant, or wherever you go, it's very hard to find an argument in any kind of serious moral philosophy that would lead you to attach a lower weight simply because somebody was born later. And that's a very serious mistake. So I think economists have not gone hard enough into the fundamentals of what discounting means. And when you do, it gets much simpler than the uh, constructs which are often built. So next slide, please. Now, this is making the point, which I've already made, that uh, we have to be thinking about extreme risks in all this. But one of the criticisms of the Stern Review way back then was that the, uh, uh, the discount, discounting was too small, discount rate was too low. And I think that's just a basic misunderstanding of the underlying economics. And I think more and more people have come around to see it in the basic 
sense of where are we going and what are our values in a much more direct uh, sense. Um, Bill Nordhaus, a scholar, a gentleman and a friend, he said the discount rate should reflect market rates of return on capital. Sorry, Bill, dead wrong. That is not a serious story in relative valuations of consumption and utility between now and the future. Next slide, please. So here, this is also for the economists, lots of market failures that are relevant here. First and foremost, top of the list is the greenhouse gas externality market failure, which I articulated right at the beginning of this lecture. But much more, research and development, capital markets, the network structures, you know, things like uh, electricity grids, public transport and so on, which depend on public policy markets, which can't work without uh, direct public policy. Information is very important. You need to know what's in the thing that you're buying. But of course, the, uh, the co-benefits and air pollution, extremely important as well. Next slide, please. Lot, lots of market imperfections, but lots of absent markets as well. You can't buy the technologies 20 or 30 years from now because you don't know what they are. When markets are absent, and uh, that tells you that expectations are going to be very important, expectations and in investment, whether you're talking about um, Von Hayek or Keynes or Schumpeter, it's expectations that are critical in driving investment. And absent markets underlines yet again the importance of public policy shaping expectations. Next slide, please. So I think I've said enough to articulate a whole set of areas of economic research, behavior, values, they've all come in to what I've said. These are absolutely fascinating parts of economics where we've, I think, given less attention that we should, but we are starting to move much more strongly in that direction. So here's some, those of you who want to do your PhDs in economics at the London School of Economics, there's, there's lots to do here. Next slide, please. So that's the way I've tried to articulate the story. Economics should be about fundamental change in real time, the dynamics of the investment, the systems change, and putting together a whole set of theory of policies and institutions we need to make that happen. It couldn't be more interesting. It's hard, but we've got to do it in real time. We can't say, give me a research grant, come back in three years, and I'll have lots of interesting uh, things to say, including give me another research grant. The, uh, <laughs> we've got to make up, we've got to find the route, take the decisions whilst thinking hard at the same time. This is a sprint, a middle distance and a marathon. We've got to move very quickly now, but we've got to be preparing for the middle distance and preparing for the marathon and for the things that are coming. Next slide, please. So uh, could you give me two minutes on COP26? Sorry, sometimes I get carried away. The um, next slide, please. This, uh, I think I've already said enough to underline that this is an absolute critical moment and it's a moment for internationalism. We actually have a chance with the G7, G20 structures that we have at the moment. We have G7, G20, UK, Italy this year. We have um, uh, next year, we have uh, the uh, Germans in the G7 and the Indonesians in the G20. And the year after that, Japan and India. We've got a chance. We're already working together to try to weave in those two institutions, which are very important in shaping how the rest of the system works, 
we had the chance to put something together in an integrated way. I've been teaching economics for 50 years now, and see a bit more, and um, I've never seen a moment where collaboration is more important than now. We teach the theory of international trade and the gains from collaborating through the trade system, and we should, and it's important, but this is much more, much more than that. It's about the recovery from COVID. It's about driving on the investment into a, a new road. If we have our expectations and common paths, then that investment's gonna have more confidence and be stronger. There are lots of increasing returns to scale. The more we act together, the more we go down those cost curves. And of course, these are public goods. There has never been a more important moment for international collaboration than now. Next slide, please. Anyway, so what's gonna happen in COP26? We may pick up some of this in the questions, but essentially we've seen good commitments to net zero. Beginning of last year, a third of um, emissions were in countries from a net zero, with net zero commitments. Now it's closer to three quarters. But nevertheless, the committed emissions reductions, the planned emissions reductions for 2030 are far too small, much less than the 45% or so that we need. So a big test of COP26 will be, are there credible mechanisms to wrap that up? I think we should meet every two years and now constantly push and push as these new technologies, new opportunities come through. The 100 billion, which I worked on all those years ago, should have been delivered in 2020. It probably will be delivered in 23. It's very important that's as soon as possible. This was the basics of trust and it was trust that wasn't actually uh, delivered on, but it's probably just a couple of years away now or one or two years away. But we've got to look and I'll be working at COP26 on this at the, how we go beyond the 100 billion. And I'll be speaking there about bilateral, multilateral, private sector flows, voluntary carbon markets and the, the Article 6 carbon markets. And finally, the, um, the philanthropic flows. And all those have to be combined together to build up to the magnitude of the investment problem that we have. It's time to go way beyond the 100 billion not only in magnitude, but particularly in how the different flows and structures of finance fit together to make all this uh, happen. Private sector moving very quickly, as I've already said. Glasgow breakthroughs on the technology are going to come through. I've said something about resilience and natural capital, and that will be a very important part of the story. So that's a quick canter through the uh, agenda for COP26. The test will be, are we really setting forth the acceleration in the momentum that we've begun to see. Will there be a credible acceleration? How will it happen? Will we have the mechanisms? Last slide, please. This is the yes, we can slide. Oh, no, it's gone. Oh, here it is. No. The, uh, it's going to be hard. I've emphasized it's going to be hard, but I've emphasized that the road is a very attractive one if we get it right. Can we? We've got interest rates on the floor. We've got the planned uh, savings in excess of planned investment. We can have the macro uh, capability of increasing the investment. Quite extraordinary technical change in the relevant dimensions that we're talking about, including in the AI and the management of systems. We've started to get traction in some of these inter international agreements. And finally, we've got the pressure of the young, which I've already referred to. Yes, we can do it. I'm enormously optimistic about what we can do. I worry deeply about what we will do. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Sorry, I went on a bit long. Thank you, Nick. That was a tour de force in your passion and commitment, Sean, through. Um, we will now turn to questions. For those in the room, please remember to press your mic uh, when you ask a question so that the people uh, outside the room can hear you. Uh, can I thank you for your question? I just want to start with one of my own, if I, if I may. You, you know, looking back, you said the Stern Review underestimated the risks. And if anything, the case for urgent action was even greater. And the scientific evidence racking up since then has only increased that. The, uh, you wrote a book after the Stern Review called What Are We Waiting For? Uh, why are we waiting? Why are we waiting? Why are we waiting? And you also mentioned in your talk, The Merchants of Doubt. Uh, who are the current, I mean, on the science, it's hard to be a merchant of doubt today, but on the economics, who are the merchants of doubt? And where are those pockets of resistance? Who are the people who are not saying, yes, we can, but no, we can't? And how can one move them? What are their interests from a kind of negotiation point of view and how does one move them? Yeah, that, that, that's a key challenge, Minouche. Um, the, we have a term which is the lukewarmers. And what the lukewarmers say is that, yeah, I suppose, you know, there's the science, it's all right, but it's not so big. And, you know, two degrees extra in Moscow in February sounds all right. You know, it, it's, so there's some who say, well, they don't want to be cast as science deniers because they would be and they would look daft and ignorant. But they, they try to say it's not really such a big deal. And the second thing they say, as you indicated, is it costs an arm and a leg to sort it out. So that's the way that the opposition has moved from outright science denial. But it, it's still there. There's still some funding by, um, uh, by vested interests in, uh, in fossil fuels. But I think it's actually uh, declining. Um, uh, I don't want to say it, it's, it's gone away, uh, but what we have to show is not only the arguments that we've been assembling here, but more and more examples of how it's attractive. And I think South Africa is going to be a very important case. That South Africa has very strong coal mining um, history and the trade unions in, in, in the coal sector are a very important part of creating the new South Africa. And so those, you have thought those vested interests, mining interests would be strong, and they are. But that discussion now is taking place. We've got to do it. We can do it. Actually, South Africa is good for renewables. And those political coalitions have started to come together. So it can be overcome. But that kind of um, opposition is, uh, is still there. And uh, you know, some of those people who voted for President Trump would uh, either share the lukewarming view or still outright science denial. Let me turn to the audience in the room. I'll take a couple of questions here and then I'll take a couple from those joining online. Who would like to start? You may just say who you are. I'm Ben. I, I just recently joined the Forest Lab at uh, the Grantham Institute. 
So I had a question. Is it all right when you're speaking yeah, to actually you not not at other, not at other times, but when you're yeah. speaking? Yeah. I just wanted to know what you think about the use of nature-based offsets writ large in meeting mitigation targets, and in particular by the private sector. Yeah. The um, we're going to need all the negatives we can get, but of course the story is much richer than that. The destruction of our natural capital has been devastating, not only for climate, but also for biodiversity. So if we have firms that have declared for net zero and are pushing very hard on their own emissions, but haven't got them down to zero, and if in the meantime they want to help other people uh, create negative emissions, that seems to me to be absolutely fine. And indeed, we could have flows in the voluntary carbon markets on top of the more official carbon markets, but we could have flows in the carbon markets that could get up in a few years, $200 billion or so a year. That would be from richer, mostly from richer countries to poorer countries. If that went into restoring degraded land in India or Ethiopia or, or wherever, you'd be capturing carbon in the soil. You'd be helping the process of development and you'd be making those people more resilient against climate change. So it seems to me to be an opportunity we should take, but the quality, the quality of those uh, is absolutely critical. Within quality, I include integrity, but it's much more than, integrity is whether it's, you know, these people are being credible or whether it's just greenwash. Uh, is this a real reduction? That, that's extremely important. Um, but the quality is more Quality includes integrity, but it also includes, does it advance development? Does it help bring down poverty? I think, and I'm active in, in, the, uh, in Clara Fursi's uh, group on, on voluntary carbon markets at the request of the Chancellor, the key is that quality story. And in order to get that, you've got to involve people on the supply side. It can't just be the demand side, the people who want to buy those reductions. It has to be working very closely with those people who are taking the actions and whether or not it's uh, strengthening their own development and whether it's strengthening biodiversity. Yeah. Planting a lot of eucalyptus trees in a water-scarce environment doesn't make a lot of sense. So uh, it's that kind of um, structure that we're going to need to make those things work well. And I do think it's possible. I'll take one more question. They shouldn't deviate, though, from first and foremost, get your own emissions down. Yes. Thanks a lot. I'm Vizali Komar from Grantham Institute, the Transition Pathway Initiative that you mentioned. Well done. <laughs> You've been mentioning uh, GFANS a couple of times, um, and uh, it's obviously a, a great development, but a lot of members of that sort of group um, are, you know, leading banks and asset managers who, on the shorter term right now, are increasing their exposure to sort of coal and um, heavy fossil fuel, um, you know, sectors and investments in general. And obviously, there are lots of smart people there to sign up to the longer term trends. What are some of the arguments one could use for the to prevent them from increasing these investments in the shorter term, uh, specifically into coal and sort of heavy fossil fuel sectors. Obviously, prices right now with the energy crisis make it quite profitable and, you know, money can be made there, but it's not great. Yeah, I, I think that if you put these alliances together, 
which are supposed to be signals of quality, right? The idea is you don't let everybody into the Glasgow Financial Alliance for net zero. They have to be credible. Uh, then it seems to me that standard of credibility is something that should be applied quite strongly. And I hope that at some stage, some people who are members will be expelled. And that would be a very good signal because they're looking to send messages to employees. They're looking to send messages to investors. We're part of the global financial alliance on net zero. We're part of this group. We're part of that group. I think it's very important that those standards are tough. And, you know, I, I'm working very closely with Mark Carney, Nigel Topping and so on around uh, that uh, story. And there is a genuine attempt to apply standards as to whether those firms really are on a path, which is to net zero. And I think that has to be applied uh, rigorously. So we're going to need, as it were, quality control mechanisms for these different kinds of alliances, as few quality control mechanisms we can get away with because we want uh, you know, clear, consistent uh, standards. But I think uh, kicking some people out who are just demonstrably not doing it would be quite a big deterrent because they want to show to attract investors, to attract employees, that they're doing um, something which is um, not only profitable because you've got to be profitable to survive, but also good for the uh, environment. So I think just as in the pre preceding question, rigor uh, is of the uh, essence. But what we can't say is, no, 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 don't do this stuff because there's some liars in the middle of it all. Now, that's, that's the council of despair, right? I'm going to turn to my colleague, Bob Ward from the Grantham Institute, who will read out some questions from the audience online. So I'm going to read out, uh, I'm going to read out the uh, most popular questions as uh, voted for by the audience. Let me keep scrolling my uh, screen down. Uh, so the first one from Nikolai Skrumsaga. Uh, how realistic is an internationally coordinated response to climate change in today's political climate? Um, well, it's our job to make it so. Um, if we said it's totally unrealistic and totally hopeless, I guess we'd just uh, drink and party and apologize to our children. I mean, the, so uh, uh, the challenge is to make it realistic. The challenge is how you build those coalitions. I think you do it through the kinds of arguments I've been trying to offer today, Nikolai. It means that you um, have to show what can be done, show that it can be very attractive, show that you can uh, give everybody a chance, show that you can protect against the uh, dislocation. And uh, it, it is remarkable in many ways how you now have uh, something like three quarters of the emissions of the world in countries which are committed to net zero. More and more, they feel they have to. Uh, even Australia and Scott Morrison has declared for net zero, somewhat mealy-mouthed in uh, many ways. But it's an indication of the pressure that they feel. And the more the private sector declares for net zero and is held to account and supported in that declaration, the more it will affect investment flows. Uh, People are very wary about investing in coal over anything like the medium term. There may be during a particularly intense fuel crisis like we have now that you have to switch off 
sorry, I have to switch on a few coal-fired power stations just to get through this Northern Hemisphere winter. That's, as it were, something which is uh, a pragmatic response to a very short-run problem. But of course, we're in this problem of volatility of fossil fuel prices because we're using fossil fuels. It's much more sensible over the medium term to build your uh, energy systems on things that don't depend on resources with that kind of uh, volatility. You know, the price of sunshine doesn't change. And that is something which should be a very solid foundation for a much more stable fuel system in the, uh, in the future. One more, Bob. So this one's from Samantha Richards. Is placing capitalist values on environmental change appropriate or should uh, Western society and politics take cues from indigenous cultures where values are more intrinsic? Nice, easy question. Well, I think there's a great deal to learn from um, discussion of how to value the environment and to learn lessons from those communities that have actually been rather good at doing that. I think one of the most successful societies in human history, and we discussed that at length actually at the British Museum, but I, I was deputy chair of the trustees and Manoush is deputy chair of the trustees of the British Museum, but we had very striking Aboriginal um, uh, uh, exhibitions or collections over the years where it was very clear that you know this is a society that lived until really quite recently for about 30,000 years with these kinds of um, understandings of the environment where they live. Now of course that was destroyed in many ways by external interference but those lessons must be powerful lessons but they're how to value, how to manage the natural resources we have. Do you draw from that, though, that we as a world have to abandon capitalism to save the planet? If that's your conclusion, then that's a conclusion that just says give up, because it's very hard to see a route that abandons capitalism. Uh, it certainly will take a while, and we haven't got much time it probably would lead to chaos and we haven't got time for that either um, we live in a market economy uh, and that i think is going to be true over a very long period of time so the challenge is to make that market economy work in a way that looks after our environment that is sustainable that doesn't self-destruct and that's the challenge and to sit down and say, oh, let's abandon capitalism seems to me to be, frankly, just cavalier. I'm going to come back to the room. I'll turn to Robert Faulkner, who's of our very own LSE. Robert. Thank you. Pressing it now. Thank you, Minouche. Um, from Robert, from the Grant Institute as well. Um, Nick. Wonderful lecture. I wanted to ask you about the politics of climate change, particularly about the problem that is well known that politicians have relatively short time horizons that they focus on. Yeah. Election cycles last four years, five years in America, sometimes only two years. 
But for climate change, we need them to think long term, and the, the emission reductions need to be implemented in the long run. We want to get to net zero over the next 20, 30 years. Now, you've talked to a fair bit of politicians in your own life. What, in your experience, works in that case? How do you get governments, how do you get politicians to take the long view, particularly when we need them now to make commitments for 2050, but hopefully also for the interim? Yeah, as you know very well, Robert, it, it, it's the Juncker couple of sentences, isn't it? It's that uh, we know what we have to do, but not how to be re-elected if we do. Um, I actually, you know, obviously it, it was made a sort of slightly quizzical um, intent, but uh, I, I think that um, that the story of this being a much better way of living um, is something which we ought to be able to make appeal uh, to voters now. Um, it's very striking. So that's the first thing, is that the narrative is a strong narrative about living standards. Uh, the second, I think, is I don't want to overdo it, but it's critically important, is that the young people of the world are actually taking the long view. And uh, they're impatient about action because action is urgent, but it is part of taking the uh, long view. And more and more politicians are sensible to that slice of the, uh, of the electorate. We're starting to see, so there's the narrative, there's the young, there's the private sector, it's one thing if professors at the London School of Economics go along to chancellors of the Exchequer and say, hey, you know, this is a story of investment that's enormously attractive and recovery, and it's the growth story of the 21st century. And, of course, I'm sure they listen attentively. But the, um, if the private sector goes and says, you know, there are these fantastic investment opportunities, if only you created an environment, that was still more conducive to those happening, then they'd come through uh, very fast. So I think what we're seeing now is the private sector start to have an influence in, uh, in this story. So I think you have to look at the parts and the pressures and don't discount that many of them want to do the right thing. I mean, some politicians are cynical, but actually not all of them are. And... Uh, you know, think of where Joe Biden dug in and was really strong on this right through an election campaign where he couldn't be sure which way that argument would, would go. He said it because he thought it was right. And I think that's true, actually, of a lot of politicians. So you can have a partially cynical view, but I think a totally cynical view would actually be damaging and, and not, not quite fair to, the, to that collection of people. One really radical idea, which I think is unlikely to be implemented, is to weight votes by the number of years of life you have left, which would mean that young people's votes would count much more than older people. But a more practical solution might be to just remind people of their grandchildren a bit more when they vote. Uh, another question from the audience. One in the back. Hi. Um, my name is Felix. I'm a master's student uh, in environmental policy here. I wanted to, um, so I'm one of the young people going to COP protesting and 
um, arguing with our politicians. For me, that's in Canada. Um, I wanted to go back to the framing of market failure, working with a lot of Indigenous peoples in Canada and, and being part of the young um, the youth climate movement. Um, the story we hear and, and I hear and what we feel a lot of the times is that the climate crisis is, is a symptom of certain logics, such as market logics, the legacy of colonialism. And so it's very hard to imagine us, you know, purely changing, let's say, uh, decarbonizing our economy and but keeping the same power structures in place. I will build, still be in the streets protesting. Like you mentioned that, you know, we're thinking of, young people are thinking of the long term. We have to, we're, we're in this for the long haul, but in the short term, we're not going to change the system, but we're working on changing these foundations, whatever we want to call a system, capitalist or not. Um, but we are working on changing that system. So I'm kind of curious to know and hear how can the economics profession be more of an ally to young people? We're, we're in your slide, I'm in your slide, um, <laughs> but I, I want to know how you can be an ally to our movement um, when we do ask for kind of a, an anti-systemic, anti-capitalist um, approach to, to solving the climate crisis. Well, one answer is to study at the London School of Economics. Um, <laughs> the, uh, if you mean getting rid completely of the market mechanism, is that what you mean? No, it's not, that's not what I mean. I think what I mean is, um, is how can we ground... How, so, so how can our narratives of justice, of working with local people across um, transnational networks um, connect with the language of economics? I mean, that's at least my question for now. I think the movement is much more broader than just what I'm working on, but at least how can justice, principles of justice, principles of intersectionality, how can that language move from this, which is political ecology to economics? Yeah. Um, on uh, the idea of justice and rights is fundamental. I mean, sustainability is trying to respect the right of future generations to have opportunities at least as good as those you had yourself. That's what the formal definition of sustainability is. And it is about respecting the rights of future generations. Um, if you are thinking about justice, I find the most uh, telling way of portraying it is uh, that one adopted by Amartya Sen in his book, The Idea of Justice, which not so long ago he launched here at the uh, LSE. And what Amartya argued is that it's easier to understand injustice um, in a very direct way than to have a generalized theory of justice. And he expressed injustice as rights denied, entitlements denied, which pushes the locus of the argument back on to rights and entitlements. Now, you don't have rights and entitlements simply by asserting them. Otherwise, people could assert anything they like. Um, but I think that discussion is about how a decent society could work with different kinds of rights and that to argue that a society could work in ways that people would regard as much better and decent and, and indeed more productive if uh, we defined rights in this way and thus injustice as things which violate those rights. That seems to me to be an approach which is perfectly consistent um, 
with political economy, with moral philosophy, and with economics, because then we have to try to define uh, a decent society relative to those kind of rights. So the right to education, you know, which is enshrined in the Declaration of Human Rights, seems to be a very important part of a just society. Um, I think we can talk about the distribution and income of wealth uh, and, and, and discuss that through. We can talk about social contracts as Manoush or the right to clean air. And indeed, the Indian uh, Supreme Court, as our own Supreme Court has done here in the UK, declared the right to breathe uh, as a, a basic human right. And you have to, you can't just declare, but you have to discuss. And then you, most people, many people would find those kind of rights reasonable. And you can integrate that into a society that invests in its children, that invests in its natural uh, capital, that orients its physical capital. And you, that can be a largely private ownership economy. And that's about building a better economy, a better society. But I, I don't honestly don't find it helpful to say nothing's going to happen until we overthrow capitalism, because that ain't going to get anywhere and I don't think it's actually intellectually that clear either. Bob, I'm going to take one but this more is, this is This is the place to have these discussions and to sit down and talk these things through, chase it back to first principles, chase it back to empirics, and I think we can get somewhere. Bob, more from the audience. So we uh, had a question from Murat Midalili about climate ethics frameworks, but I think you've just dealt with the question. So the next question is from Leonardo Regis. Um, what are your thoughts on emission trading systems, particularly in light of the start of phase four in the European Union and the recently established national emissions trading system in China? What do you think could be the role of ETSs in green financing and renewable energy investments? Yeah, the, the emissions trading system, probably most of you know, but what you do is you um, allocate an entitlement to uh, a firm and uh, if they emit more than that entitlement, then they have to buy the right to emit on uh, uh, the open market and that's the emissions uh, trading system. It was introduced in Europe um, in order to, uh, it was really political economy, it was sort of to bring people along so that at the beginning, uh, they didn't face the new tax, which uh, increased their costs without any uh, way of handling it. So what happened was that you do introduce a price uh, for carbon, but if you stay exactly where you are, if your emissions are what you used to be uh, emitting, if you stay exactly where you are, you don't actually uh, pay more or less. But if you increase your emissions, you pay more. So that was the idea of actually not impoverishing the firm, but giving the price incentives on the margin. A second argument for an emissions trading scheme is that it's the absolute quantity of emissions that really matters. So if you set the absolute quantity and you let the market determine what the price would be. So there was those two arguments, one which is the quantity story versus the price story in a world of uncertainty. And the other one was the political economy story of bringing people along. Um, I hope, and, and then of course, what happened is during the global financial crisis and the slowdown, they didn't adjust the emissions permits that they gave out. So they crashed the carbon price 
in Europe and got the whole structure a bad name. Now what they're doing is ramping up uh, the price by controlling the permits more strongly. So they're moving in a good direction. One thing I think that uh, you can see the merits in both cases, but I think the carbon pricing, the carbon taxing, carbon taxing approach is simpler. And I hope by now it's something that we could move to. Um, and when you're you know, talking about taxing carbon beyond the emissions trading scheme, which is a fairly narrow base in Europe, you know, going on to uh, taxing fuel for homes and transport and so on, then it seems to me that carbon tax uh, makes um, uh, makes more sense now. But both schemes are fine, um, and they've both made some contribution. Uh, the problem was that Europe mismanaged its emissions trading scheme for a long period, and the price crashed down, and the incentive was... Uh, lost. So that volatility story associated with mismanagement is a problem. Whereas if you've got a clear, strong carbon price rising over time, I think it's easier from the point of view of people's expectations for investment to orient uh, around that. That was a bit of a technical question. (laughs) Sorry, I gave a technical answer. (laughs) I think we are out of time. So Nick, 15 years ago, you wrote the Stern Review, and you were an early visionary with bold analysis and a call for action. I hope that when we get to the 20th anniversary of the Stern Review, we will all be lifting a glass to the progress to net zero, and that you will never have to write another review, (laughs) (laughs) and that the huge impact that you've had both on are thinking about climate change, but also the solutions to climate change will be much appreciated. So thank you very much for all that you've done, uh, for all of us, for teaching us about these issues, and for more importantly, for actually shaping the global debate about these issues. Let's hope that COP26 is a big success. And for those of you who are gonna be there, please do all you can to make that happen. And most importantly, Nick will be there doing everything he can. And in that long line of cops that you've attended, may this one be the most successful one. Uh, But thank you. Thank you for all you've done. Thank you for the audience who's here. Thank you for the audience online and for your excellent questions. And we are also just especially thrilled to be together in the same room. And for those of you who are here, please join us uh, outside and raise a glass for the planet. But Finally, if you could just join me in thanking Nick for an outstanding speech and for an outstanding contribution uh, over a lifetime on these issues. Thank you.